backroom politics. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from a remote broadcasting opportunity. I am in the Big Apple, the great city that we know as New York. Joining me as they do every Tuesday from our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. First off, he is the former Joe Biden Democratic political operative and bar certified attorney in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia. He's a man that we know as Dan Lipner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Justin. I'm glad we have as many viewers as Bill O'Reilly does. We do. Actually, here's I got a funny fact about that. I was going to bring that up at the end, but yeah, we do. Hey, joining me as we as he does every Tuesday when we're on, he is the man that we know as the former Undersecretary of Commerce uh, who's last served as many as four presidents at last count. He is longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington operative, and a very distinguished fellow at the Stimson Center. He's the Honorable Alan Moore. Alan, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you, Justin. Hello, Dan. We have just a ton, ton to get to. But, I I mean, I I don't even know where to start. I mean, I guess I could start with, the breaking news uh, here out of Washington, D.C., it appears that President Trump has, in fact, authorized new military force in Afghanistan at the request of several of his top generals over and military leaders at the Pentagon. Uh, Alan, you know, this is a complete 180 from the president's uh, from President Obama's draw down and back out of Afghanistan. <clears throat> why this? Why now? And does it make sense for our foreign policy? Well, I haven't seen all of the explanation. I, what we have seen with uh, President Trump is, uh, A, uh, throughout the campaign, he was he was critical, uh, at least at the, <laughs> oftentimes, of, uh, of the decisions that President Obama made. Uh, more to the point, um, he has shown uh, himself um, uh, quite a bit of flexibility, and he doesn't—he doesn't feel um, tied down by statements he's made in the course of the campaign. He has changed his mind on a number of occasions. I don't remember that he—that uh, he tied his hands on uh, additional troops to Afghanistan, but even if he had, um, I. What, what we've been seeing from him is that wouldn't necessarily uh, uh, tie his hands. What we've also seen with him is willing to defer, listen to, and then defer uh, significantly to his senior military leaders from the, the Secretary of Defense uh, to the National Security Advisor and so on. So if he's got the entire military uh, uh, in line and no objection from, say, the Secretary of State or the Vice President, who he also looks to on on foreign affairs, um, then it's not a surprise. Beyond that, I haven't seen the details, but I'm guessing that uh, there's a a powerful rationale here uh, for some limited increase. So, Dan Lindner... Here's, here's the other thing about this is, is that the president also today is starting to walk a very tight wire with one of our big NATO allies in Turkey. 
President Trump today also authorized the armament of the Kurdish uh, Kurdish Defense Forces in uh, Kurdish Iraq and Kurdish Syria, uh, another area that we know as Kurdistan. Um, <clears throat> why is that combined with the idea of sending troops in Afghanistan almost got many in Washington scratching their head about these decisions? Well, I'm glad you brought this one up because I actually think the Kurdish, the support of the Kurds is a much more interesting move. Um, I mean, I've been saying for years, as far as the region goes, the Kurds of, of various different groups and factions that are in the region have shown themselves to be the most competent at self-governing and most likely to be natural allies based on their own values. Um, but the catch is the, they've been fighting a quasi-hot war with Turkey and the territory that is that would be known as Kurdistan also encompasses a small portion of Turkey. So the Turks consider the Kurds a threat to their own sovereignty. Um, this is a pretty huge break, and it's been a a a tight wire that the that the U.S. has been walking for years, uh, trying not to alienate, be in the process of trying to support the Kurds. So. That is a very big, big move and big change in U.S. foreign policy, and it does also raise other questions as far as with the new nationalism that's asserting itself in Turkey under uh, President Erdogan, what that actually is going to mean going forward. Is this actually going to push his hand and his backers to an even more uh, nationalistic radical tendencies that they've been moving towards in the, in the last few years. Alan Moore, you know, there are those, I mean, there are those that believe that uh, the Kurds themselves, some have argued saying that they are in fact a, a terrorist group in some eyes. Others say that they are the best force that, and the best ally that we can have in that region to help defeat ISIS and help defeat uh, Syrian tyranny uh, out of Damascus. Where's the reality lay in that? Well, as, as Dan pointed out, this is, this is not a new dilemma with regard to uh, our, our historic ally, Turkey, a member of NATO and someone who's uh, – Desire to join the economic union or the European Union, we have been we have been uh, uh, supportive of, and we rely very heavily on uh, on bases uh, and have for forever um, in uh, in Turkey. Even as we are very troubled by the uh, the accumulation of power in the hands of the current president Erdogan, uh, who has just succeeded in a close constitutional referendum in having in, in in earning the ability to run for office still twice two more times. Um, and so long ally, we've been watching with concern at at recent at, at moves over the last half a dozen years. In the meantime, uh, one of the best fighting forces in the region of northern Syria and Iraq is the Kurds. They 
They get trained. They fight hard. They're loyal. We need them in in uh, in or in Iraq and Syria to fight ISIS and Al Qaeda. The more we work with them, the more we run afoul of historic relationships with Turkey. So I think what you can assume here is that um, that notwithstanding the distress that our moves will create with with uh, the the Turkish leader, we have decided that additional cozying up support of and arming of Kurdish forces is, is a risk we'll take. What you see though, in response is Erdogan uh, just in the last 24 hours himself being much more assertive and aggressive in negative comments about Israel. It's hard not to separate those actions from themselves. And we don't need additional sources of tension among people we're trying to work with there, but uh, we don't we don't always get to control these things and decide how stuff's going to play out. Dan Dan Lipner, is this is there is there another way that we could have done this without uh, teetering an ally like Turkey or has Erdogan changed the dynamic in our relationship with Turkey so much that, you know, damn the torpedoes, we're going to back our allies. And that happens to be the Kurds. This might be one of those things where Trump benefits of not having the paralysis of analysis. And I actually mean that in a good way in this case. So the Kurds ever since the first Gulf war um, have been fighting their own fight, at least in, as far as our eyes were, against whatever oppressive groups were over them. And that, that fight precedes the first Gulf War, but our involvement was principally at the first Gulf War and since. Um, as far as the Erdogan issue, uh, I mean, President Trump did call, even though it's a, a courtesy call, um, President Erdogan to congratulate him on his electoral victory. And that made some news, but it's more in the vein of it's just the courtesy and that's what you do. I don't know if, if Trump is actually crimped by ideology. So the practicality of the situation is everything that Alan said is correct. The Kurds are good fighters. They've actually governed themselves quasi-democratically. Actually, I don't even think it's quasi-democratically. I think democratically um, under, the, under the current Iraqi state. And, again, they seem like a natural ally. That the Erdogan issue, the reading into it with Erdogan's moves, might be unnecessary as far as the White House is thinking. Obviously, uh, true foreign policy experts are going to debate and have to deal with what happens going forward. But I don't think that was any of the White House's thinking. I think it was a very a short-term tactical move that, based on a rational uh, ally on the ground being the Kurds who have, again, shown themselves to be good fighters and organized and all the things that we would want out of, out of an allied force. So that kind of short-term thinking, I think, is, was the White House's decision-making. The only question is what the, it's going to mean for the long term. 
Alan, I, I pose a question to you. Do, has Erdogan changed the dynamic in the way that Washington looks at Ankara? Well, <laughs> we we are we are constantly reevaluating uh, uh, that relationship with him. We we have had to come to grips with the fact that he is there to stay. He continues to maintain a degree of popularity that allowed some extraordinary new, new powers to be granted to somebody who has been in office for, I think, 16 years to, in fact, start the clock again, run for president as many as two, two, two more times with enhanced powers. Um, he has to run. He has to win. He thinks he can't. He thinks he can. He thinks he will. Um, so it's it, worth noting the worst me with irregularities on the, in the last balloting. Uh, indeed, it was a very close outcome, and there are there. Dan is absolutely right. There are those who say there were enough regularities to bring the entire outcome into question. Um, I I can't speak to that. Um, it 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 was certainly not a, a landslide in the other direction. It it appears that it was close. He prevailed. It's not clear whether cheating was going on to to the, make him prevail. It's not clear that if there were cheating, that that will uh, uh, percolate up, become visible, and affect the outcome. I think what 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 we're kind of s- stuck with, whether he barely won or lost, but figured out a way to be declared victor. We got him to deal with, and he has got enhanced powers. He is increasingly stretching his own muscle, and as I said, has has just in the last couple of days become even more overtly aggressive in criticizing Israel than he has been in the past. For example, he's he calls on all Muslims to visit Jerusalem, uh, a holy city of uh of all of Islam and many, many uh, Muslims do travel to Jerusalem to the Islamic uh, uh, historical shrines there. And he's saying, everybody needs to go. Everybody needs to go. And um, we need to show uh, Israel uh, uh, how to act in this modern world. He's, he's been quite critical uh, increasingly. So, so, we 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 need we need we need him in his bases. We need him in in housing and hosting um, hundreds of thousands of refugees um, from uh, Iraq and Syria. Um, and we also need uh, we need his support uh, on the ground. But it ter- in 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 terms of. Uh, uh, the conflict, but it turns out that the Kurds are the better fighters on the ground. Um, we don't love the situation that we're in, but uh, uh, we're both trying to be to prevail on the ground and and send him signals. And it's a complicated matter. Um, and and the president's getting a lot of advice on this, and I'm sure some of that advice is in conflict. This is not one where everybody lines up um, and says. Yep, this is what we have to do. Uh, that doesn't mean there's not a there's not a majority, but but th- th- there are differences of opinion on this stuff. Dan, let me go to you. Uh, last question: Is is this a situation that should get 
the folks in NATO headquarters nervous? The short answer is we'll see. Um, the question is, I mean, the, the larger purpose of NATO would actually be the larger, the, the philosophical question at play. And Turkey is no military slouch. They have one of the largest militaries in the, in the world. Um, was it earlier this year or late last year when they actually shot down a Russian fighter that, that veered into their airspace? Um, the, the Turkish military, it can stand on its own. But the question is whether or not it's the, the NATO, the attack against one is the attack against all, is true in all cases, or is it really just there to, to stand against possible Russian aggression? Um, if it's against Russian aggression, Turkey's involvement at the moment would seem iffy based on where Russia's interests are at the moment. If it's still the larger issue of an attack against one is attacked against all, and that's all comers anywhere on the globe, then various different issues in the Mideast, and if Turkey chooses to rattle its sabers in, in other regions, are we comfortable getting involved should uh, should the pact be called on? That's part of the question. So it's definitely something that people need to be paying attention to because in the long run, there we could be drawn into other fights that we didn't quite expect. And right. worse yet, choose not to follow up should it be exercised. And then the question is, is NATO just a paper tiger and doesn't really stand for anything? I mean, these are real questions. Right, right. Well, I want to take a break here real quick because I want to get to the big guts of what we had planned today. Because for those who didn't see it, there was a hearing on the Hill yesterday that involved a former acting attorney general and a former director of national intelligence. Whoo, that was interesting. But we're going to take a quick break. When but we come before, back. Be, be, before we go, before yeah. we go, let, let, let me make one other observation on, on uh, matters internationally. Um, one of which we, we, we might have come back to them, but just a reminder of how little we have, how little control we have over events in elections in other countries. Oh, um, we're going to talk we, about that. We're, we're, you know, we're talking about Erdogan. We've, we've, we, we will probably talk about the French election. And, oh, yeah. uh, and then we had, a, we had a South Korean election just yesterday where a liberal who wants to have improved relations with North Korea and remove the anti-missile defense system that we so dramatically recently uh, flew into uh, to South Korea. All of these elections, you know, we, we don't control them. We have opinions. America's divided on these things. And we have to live with the outcome, just as other countries have to live with the outcome of U.S. elections, which may surprise them and trouble them and concern them. So do we have to do the same thing in elections elsewhere. Well, we're going to be, we're going to be talking about that. You just stole the entire 530 segment. But OK, we're good. Well, we can we can quit early then. We're, yeah, we're good. We'll be, done by, <laughs> we'll be done by 515. Anyway. We're going to take a break. We'll be back it's in fine. two minutes. This is Backroom Politics live right. on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back. Stay with us.
For the best political talk show you've never heard of it is Backroom Politics. Uh, live from a split setting, uh, I am joining you from the Big Apple, the great city that we know as New York City, and joining me as you do every Tuesday down in our nation's capital. It is uh, the Honorable Alan Moore and Daniel Lipner Esquire. Hey, uh, we're going to change, we're going to get to the juicy, gossipy stuff that everybody loves to watch on the news and political talk shows. That's right. In case you haven't seen it, there's been a few really juicy, and that's the only word I can use, just juicy, when it comes to uh, congressional hearings over the past week. Start off with uh, FBI Director James Comey going in in front of the, uh, was it House Judi- or Senate Judiciary, Alan Moore? Um, it... Uh... Good question. Um, or was man, it I think it was, it was the Senate. Senate. Huh? Um, I'm yeah. just I'm blanking on that. But I, I recall Feinstein right. hearing him up. Yes, thank you, thank you. It, it was, was definitely uh, it was Senate Judiciary. Yeah, and then yeah. and then and then yesterday, in case you missed it. Uh, uh, a, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, and then yesterday. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Missed it. A Senate. Intelligence Subcommittee, headed up by uh, the subcommittee chairman, South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham. Uh, yeah, it's actually the, a judiciary judiciary subcommittee. Judiciary subcommittee. I'm sorry, you're right. It's judiciary subcommittee. Yeah. Uh, set up by uh, or uh, overseen by uh, Chairman Lindsey Graham, Republican out of South Carolina, brought in the former acting Attorney General. Uh, uh, Sally Yates and former director of national intelligence James Clapper. Interesting, interesting testimony brought forward by uh, Sally Yates. It, it appeared in public that Sally Yates was fired for not enforcing the um, the tramp the tramp travel the Trump travel ban or travel restrictions. 
it's now seeming more likely that there were other factors involved with her dismissal. I'm going to start with you, Dan Libner. Uh, this is a career attorney with the Department of Justice, uh, was picked to be the acting attorney general, the, the, the career acting in the transition. Uh, and apparently she had a, uh, a, a meeting in which uh, Press Secretary Sean Spicer called it a heads up. She referred to it as a bringing you the flaming red flare of notification to then ha- uh, or to current White House uh, General Counsel Don McGahn. Uh, what was so significant about Sally Yates going to White House Counsel and warning them? about the current situation and the vulnerability that uh, former National Security Advisor General Flynn had in the administration. Well, there are a couple of things that came out of, out of all of that, um, not the least of which was the, the line, as far as I can tell, is an actual quote from the White House counsel which is, why does it matter if one White House official lies to another? And that's in reference to Flynn lying to the vice president, um, which I'm, it's in the world of politics or workplace, yeah, sure, people lie to each other. But the, the White House counsel not understanding the weight of the issue um, that this would put Flynn in the situation of being vulnerable to blackmail uh, – by, by the Russians in the future and as national security advisor who literally has access to all of the most sensitive secrets and he's the gateway to the president on almost everything having to do with security, um, that not connecting those dots uh, is, is a little troubling. And, and then for the acting attorney general, Sally uh, Yates, to be fired uh, not long after that under the supposedly under the guise of not enforcing the travel ban with this other issue sitting out there. And then Senator Whitehouse had the line of the hearing saying, you know, how do you explain the 18-day gap uh, for General Flynn remaining on staff after this notification? Does beg the question of whether or not this White House took any of it seriously, at least on the front end. Had it not been for the for the, the leaks, which uh, uh, General Yates was asked about, and she also denied being part of the, the, the leak, whether or not uh, General Flynn would still be the National Security Advisor today is not an illegitimate question based on the information that we're getting from these hearings. Alan Moore, how serious are the comments, or how serious of, of, of a, or how concerned should the White House be based on the comments of uh, then at the Attorney General Sally Yates, and it almost seemed like a lot of what General Yates was saying was backed up by uh, former DNI Director James Clapper. Was, it, was that a tactical move, having her appear with Clapper as almost backup? No, I, th- remember, this was, this was Lindsey Graham saying, let's get these people up here and hear what they have to say. Let's find out what who knew what, who said what, and what was done. And uh, Clapper was in the loop. Yates was in the loop. I, I think that Clapper, I, I can't recall this. It probably came out at the hearing. I think Clapper was even in the meeting with, with, uh, with White House counsel. 
Now, remember where we are in time. We're a couple days into the new administration. Um, There's a question that's come up about uh, Flynn having talked to the Russian ambassador, which information had had been leaked. And then what did they talk about? And uh, the vice president on uh, on a talk show said, I've talked to General Flynn, and he assures me that they didn't talk about uh, the the sanctions that had recently been imposed on uh, Russians in response to uh, their efforts to influence our election. Um, and uh, so he was saying these things with, with great assurance. The... <laughs> Sally Yates and the intelligence folks, and then the intelligence folks would have picked this up. Um, uh, possibly FBI picked it up, and I can't remember if Comey was in that meeting or not. But basically, they knew that that what Pence was saying and attributing to Flynn was not correct, and they thought, "Oh my God, we know it's not correct. The Russians know it's not correct." And since it's all attributable to Flynn, all of a sudden, Russia is in a potential position to blackmail Flynn. And so that was what they were bringing to the White House attention. And, and here's the White House three days in. They're, <laughs> they don't have much staff. They're trying to figure out what the heck's going on in all manner of things. And, and uh, they... They, I, I, I don't. I'm not troubled by a question by a by a McGann simply saying, now, because he's a lawyer, remember, is saying, now, is is that is that uh, a violation of the law from one guy to lie to another? It's not a good idea. We can all acknowledge that. It's a horrible, horrible thing. He, but it, it doesn't trouble me that he might say, would he be breaking a law if he did that? The, he also asked, McGahn did, according to the testimony, so are you recommending that we fire Flynn? And Yates said, we're not, we don't make those kinds of recommendations. That's up to you guys to decide what to do about this stuff. But this is a big deal, and we felt duty-bound to bring it your, to your attention. And I'm thinking, I don't, as Dan says, we don't know what would have happened had the leaks not occur. Um, I am not convinced. I'm not convinced that they would have, you know, that, that they wouldn't have thought about this, talked amongst themselves some more, reflected further on it, and decided Flynn can't stay. When it was leaked that the, that the conversation occurred, then they, uh, they had no choice and acted right. quickly. Um, and, and so not only were they trying to figure out who said what to whom, but then there were obviously a bunch of questions about, did you guys, uh, did you guys leak this? Who do you think leaked it? And so on. And that was a whole second line of, uh, of, of inquiry in the hearing. It's also worth noting that, that the other line that we heard a lot of from several parties, including, uh, Yates and Clapper, was the there are several things we can't talk about here in an in an unsecured setting. So that was kind of an interesting recurring line throughout both hearings. Well, Dan, let me let me just let me just go back to one thing. Going back to Alan's point was when it, it seems to me that uh, there's a lot of factors in play here, but here. Here is the big question I think everybody's asking. 
which is the bigger of the violations or which is the bigger of the gaps? Is it the fact that uh, Kelly um, is, is it the fact that the general himself lied to the vice president, possibly lied on his application issues with uh, his, regarding his security clearances, or is the bigger issue here the Russian involvement with the election? Because to me, it sounds like opponents of Trump could very well get lost in the for, you know in the forest through the trees. Well, you cannot you cannot ignore any of the three great big issues here, and 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 first and foremost, because it threatens our <clears throat> our democracy the most, is Russian intervention in potential intervention in our election, and we will go down in history arguing about whether the hacks and the emails that were disclosed by presumably the Russians made the difference, but we'll never know for sure. They might have. A lot of things could have made the difference, right? But that's really big, and that's big for us. It's big for other Western democracies. It's big for anybody who's, who's got any kind of an, of an election, one. Two, is it how important is it that a national security advisor to the president of the United States with the highest possible clearances available to anyone and access to virtually all of the nation's secrets is lying to, to his vice president, A, and B, uh, lying or uh, withholding information about his, uh, his relationships with clients and with the the Russians in terms of speaking for 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 significant amount amounts of money, that's another great big deal. And and it's no small matter that our intelligence com- community, not brand new problem, continues to oftentimes leak like a sieve. So national secrets are vulnerable to being released by any individual who has that information and decides to take it upon himself or herself to share it to affect events. They're all big deals. And to say one's more important than the other, I mean, Russians uh, affecting the outcome of our election, it's hard to be any bigger than that. But this other stuff is huge also. What happens is in this hearing is, People don't want to talk about things that might be embarrassing to the Trump administration, so then they want to talk about leaks. Um, and uh, the leaks are important, but but, but, Dan, but the but Dan, uh, the role of the Russians is the most important of all. All right, but Dan Dan Lipner, I want to look at this legally. You know, if if you are Dan, if you are uh, White House Counsel McGahn, and you are you are told by the acting Attorney General that there is um, a possible vulnerability with somebody close to your administration and who, oh, by the way, was just named as National Security Advisor to the President, is, it, it would seem to me that that would set in motion a lot more 
uh, events than actually is taking place that we're finding out as a result of yesterday's hearing. Why is everybody surprised by either the lack of or the failure to react to this notice from the acting attorney general? Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, having never had this job as, as White House counsel, but going on a limb on a guess on how you might respond to this, since you are the, 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 the White House's chief lawyer, not the president's, White House's chief lawyer. So being there to, to guard the, the administration's back as, as far as in the White House, it would seem to me not unreasonable to have given the, the acting attorney general and whatever intelligence sources she had available to her 24 hours to get every po- get a legal memorandum detailing every possible vulnerability, both in his written responses for his security clearances, since he seems to have failed on those fronts, as well as these other things. So he could pre- present it first to the White House chief of staff and then to the president the next day. That would seemingly be what the appropriate response should have been. And with the resources of of the the uh, Justice Department, I'm quite certain they could turn it around that quickly. Now, this White House, and this is why Flynn is special, and because the Trump campaign, which Flynn was also a part of, and the current Trump administration, at least the White House, is a very, very small group of people. They have lots of empty seats floating around out there. Because of that, Flynn is in a uniquely powerful position, even compared to other novice presidencies, because President Trump doesn't have other trusted foreign policy advisors to lean on that he knows personally. Even though he didn't know Flynn much beyond the campaign, at least he knew him for those months of the campaign. That doesn't count for most of the other people that are that are in his intelligence realm or representing this White House for its foreign policy. So making sure they had a bulletproof response when approaching the president, ideally with the backing of the chief of staff, would have made sense. None of that happened. But so Alan Moore, it does beg the question how they do things. Well, but, but, but Alan Moore, it, it almost begs the question of, is this a – lack of understanding or is this just pure arrogance on the part of the White House? Well, I'm, I, I don't I don't think they knew enough at that point on something like this to be arrogant. I think it was ignorance and lack of people, as, as, as Dan says. 18 days is a long time for something like this on the one hand. On the other hand, Three days in, you hear something like this, and you're thinking, oh, my God, now what do I do? What am I supposed to do? Like, that's when he says to, to Yates, so is, did he break the law? <laughs> and, and is that, do we got to pay attention to that? And should we fire him? It, it shows that, that he, and I'm sympathetic to this, right, because he's so new. And, and these guys are working 20 hours a day on all sorts of other stuff. And it's hard to figure out how to prioritize early on. Here's the, 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 the big question here, though, is, you know, I can be a sympathetic and other can, people can be less so to Don McGann. What did he do with this information? Did he sit on it? Did he talk to one or two people and say, wow, we got to pull this, we got to figure out what to do? Did he talk to Reince Priebus? 
Did he talk to the vice president? Did he talk to Flynn? Did he talk to the president? Now, one of the things that we'll that we'd really like to know is a who he talked to and b what they all said. Um, and and you know it's entirely possible. And this is where you 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 got to be really careful when you start guessing at what people did or didn't do. But, you know, uh, the new guy, and, and, and Don McGahn, he's not a novice. He's been around. He was the main lawyer involved in the campaign. He negotiated the details for all the presidential debates with the presidential commission. He's been around, uh, never been in a role like this, but, but uh, he's a grown-up. Having said that, what grown-ups typically do is they, they share information. They don't tend to sit on it especially when it's coming from the acting attorney general and some of the top people in the intelligence uh, world. Um, My hunch is he shared it. And it wouldn't surprise me if it got to the president and if the president may have said, oh, well, we knew he was having these conversations. I don't know that. I am not accusing the president of saying that. It's just in trying to figure it out, the president would know far less than these other folks about how significant this might be. And if the president felt that he knew who Flynn was talking about and even what he was talking about, um, it, you can see how he might not have got that excited. I am not accusing the, the, the president of mishandling this because we don't know what he was told and, and if he was told and how he responded, and I'm not sure we'll ever learn that. But, but uh, it, it, having said all of that, this was the first few days, and this wasn't the only issue that they were struggling with trying to 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 figure out. It's in, in retrospect, it's unique. They in its still significance needed a crowd because, size count. Yeah, but, well, and because of, because of the because of the 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 connection to the. Russians and what uh, the intelligence community community had been observing, and then what what uh, as that information started to leak out, that that suddenly dwarfed the question. And, and as Dan <laughs> rightly points out, how many people were in the crowd on inauguration day? There were these there were these sideshows, these diversions that 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 were that were so damaging um, uh, because they. They looked petty as well as just factually wrong, and there's some big stuff brewing over here in the corner that 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 kind of gets pushed aside. I did want to say one thing about Yates because you were saying you were suggesting that she might have been fired for more reasons than the uh, the fact that she refused to uh, carry out the executive order. I don't see any evidence of that. I don't see any evidence of that at all. Here was an executive order. She did explain, and this was pretty interesting in her exchange with Ted Cruz, because he was trying to he oh, was trying was to pin her down actually, a little. That was a great moment. <laughs> trying to trying to trying to pin her down and say, you know, in 200 years, have you ever heard of a of an attorney general who who uh, uh, after after finding something was legal, um, then uh, refused to carry it out, and she very promptly said. Um, it was the Office of Legal Counsel that decided it was constitutional to do this, and the, it was the Office of Legal Counsel that was instructed not to inform the Attorney General, meaning right. me. So 
I didn't sign off on this. And when I looked at it and consulted with my folks in the department, I concluded we did not have the legal authority. It was unconstitutional, and therefore, I refused to carry it out. Now, in so doing, she knew she would be fired. She had a choice, either go go that well, three choices. One, she could have just said, I hate it. I'll hold my nose. I'll carry it out because I think that even though I think it stinks, uh, I think it's it's legal. She could have said, I'm going to resign respectfully because I feel that that whether it's legal or not, I, I happen to believe it's not, but whether it is or not, I can't in good conscience carry it out. Or she could stay in the job and say, I'm not doing it, in which case she knew absolutely that, that she would be fired. And, you know, I think she decided that she liked what that might uh, mean Alan, for her to the extent that, Alan, that, I'm that she could figure that out. Part of the story. What's that? When, uh, when, Ted, when Ted Cruz, uh, there are two laws in question for the, for the, uh, the executive order, the Muslim ban executive order. One is, I believe, a 52 law signed by Eisenhower, and the next one is in the early 60s. And Ted Cruz correctly referenced the law signed by Eisenhower, saying the executive had all these powers as far as borders go. And then Yates promptly responded, quoting chapter and verse, the law from the 60s that says you may not discriminate. And under the legal premise, when you have conflicting laws like that, the last in time generally is what dictates. Obviously, it can rise to the Supreme Court. But Ted Cruz, somebody who thinks of himself as smarter than everyone else in the room, was shut down pretty quickly by General Yates. That was pretty impressive. (laughs) It was impressive. Fair fair point. Fair point. Dan Lipner, the she's got a, she's got a bigger staff. She's got a bigger staff than he does. <laughs> true, true. Dan Lipner, I still want to go back to the the ultimate question here is because this also ties into uh, the situation with uh, the previous week, where FBI Director James Comey uh, went back in front of a uh, House committee. Regarding his, no, it was also the Senate. It, it was. It also was the, the full Judiciary right. Committee. I'm sorry, that's right. It was the full committee. I apologize. Thank you for correcting me on that. Uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, where he, he basically came out and said, number one, I was given the case. I was given a case, and if I had to do it over again, I would have. Ex- I would have. I would have exa- done it exactly the same way on how I presented it to the public, to Congress, and to the world. It, it strikes me that there's a lot of convolution going on here, and and I go to you, uh, Dan Littner, as an attorney. What is the end game in all of this? What does Congress hope to get, both legally and politically, out of all of this? And what realistically can it get out of all this? I mean, that's a reasonable question. I mean, the the politicization of the FBI um, is something that has been feared basically since its inception, since Hoover, who most certainly had his enemies lists and had files upon files upon people who did any bad thing ever in their lives that were in politics. And Hoover was feared um, by politicians in not just in Washington, D.C., but around the country. Uh, because of these files. And federal law enforcement has enormous powers. Uh, 
when it comes to investigations um, into all sorts of things. That said, the, the congressional investigations into this last election and Comey's statement about the Clinton emails, some of which he misstated in the hearing yesterday. I'm not quite. I don't want to overstate it, but he 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 basically overstated what was found on Anthony Weiner's uh, computer from uh, Huma Abedin. But nonetheless, there were things there that were later found to be later. The classification level was raised up, but they were not classified at the time. But that goes down the rabbit hole a little too far. I think it's important for for Congress to take this seriously to make sure that federal law enforcement isn't taking sides. And I actually felt for Comey when he said he felt nauseous, uh, thinking that the FBI may have had an impact on this election. That is, based on what I've come to understand about Comey, I think he's sincere. I, I said before I thought he was bulletproof. I still think that's true. I think his judgment was flawed, but I, I think the core of who he is is genuine. And as far as a leader of the FBI, I would hope most would follow in his mold. I am deeply concerned as far as who might follow based on this president's selections for other positions, but that's that's a question for sometime in the future. But making sure that rules and regulations that govern how the FBI acts in these extraordinarily sensitive situations where the FBI's actions or inactions can actually have have an effect on something as large as the presidential campaign matters. Um, and there are a few members of Congress on both sides that seem to be taking that seriously. Now, it's worth noting there are some that are clearly treating this like a dog and pony show, but there are some that, and Lindsey Graham is one of those folks, that are taking this very seriously, that looking to the FBI as an arbiter of truth and justice without without sounding you know too Americentric, that it, this matters, and I would hope that's what comes from this, making sure the FBI um, has better guidance to act in the future and to ensure that they're not put in this position again. Alan, Alan, well, Alan, yeah. I want to ask the question, though, is from a political standpoint, what does either side look to get out of all these hearings? Well, so the the there there will continue to be a lingering question about whether FBI director Comey did the right thing at the right time and and whether the actions he took had a uh a, a disproportionate or significant or meaningful impact on the uh election itself this is another one where we're never going to know whether it made the difference or not some pretty smart people have said yes, and some other pretty smart people have said no, and they they cite data to show it. But 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 it, you know, and the fact that it was an, a really unusual set of circumstances is fine and interesting. But it it that sort of begs the question of of Comey and his decision making process. I found it fascinating to hear him talk about. His process and remind us all of some history that he was basically when it came to deciding not only whether that to reopen the investigation of uh, Secretary Clinton's emails, an investigation that had been shut down months before with the finding that although she was 
horribly careless. He was pretty blistering. That was controversial too in his in his criticism of her. Said there wasn't anything that it was not sufficient to be prosecutable, and that was a controversy. And the and, and Trump and others got angry that he that he didn't uh, uh, indict her. And uh, then the Democrats were angry that he was critical of her. He, as far as I could tell at the time, he said, we didn't see an indictment. But, boy, we looked hard at it because there was some, some dumb stuff that occurred. At the time, he promised the committees of Congress that if this thing had to be opened up again, he'd let them know. And when, in the course of looking at Anthony Weiner's behavior, they they have his laptop and they discover a bunch of Hillary Clinton's State Department emails. Um, they and they don't they they don't have a, a subpoena to look at them, but they realize this is some of the same kinds of stuff they'd been looking at it before. But before, is this new? Is there anything different? The timing could not have been worse. Um, Uma Abedin was under <laughs> had a had a had a legal duty not only to not do have that hold them or return them or the computer she did none of those things so she played a major role here even though she didn't realize what she was doing was wrong it was wrong in a very big way the timing was absolutely horrendous and Comey had to make a decision, one, whether to open the investigation, and then, two, whether to inform the committees of Congress that he had. He did inform them. He informed them in writing. Now, in the moment that those letters went out, they were released, but we do forget that, that he didn't go out and talk about it. He just said, hey, we got some new stuff. We got to look. Wanted you to know. And, uh, and then the political environment at the time, it's no surprise that that was – simply released uh, almost immediately to the press. But we learned the other day from Comey, though, that it was one of the – he was really alone because he couldn't talk to the attorney general because she, several months earlier, had had a little quiet tete-a-tete on an airplane with one right. Bill Clinton. And she had recused herself from all of this right. stuff. So he said to her, I'm going to make an announcement. I can't talk to you, but you might want to tune in. It, um, or or – so, you know, it was very, very strange and unfortunate, and we'll probably not see something like it. Dan's absolutely right about the importance of of, uh, of leaders of the FBI to, to right. go by the book and, but, and a, 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 apply all the rules. But they also have to keep their word to Congress. And he was caught between a rock and a hard place if he had not brought that information forward at the time. He would have been ripped apart. Yeah once it became known for Alan, violating the promises he made to Congress. Alan, yeah. Alan, let me go, let me go to Dan Lipner real quick. Is Dan, let me ask you this question in the grand scheme of everything, looking at the testimony of Yates and Clapper yesterday, looking at the testimony of, of uh, director Comey last week, which is the bigger legal problem? Is it in fact the leaks or is it in fact what Flynn did? Oh, the leaks versus Flynn? It's absolutely Flynn. And the reason I can say that with some certainty is not that I'm incredibly happy about leaks, but leaks are one of those uncomfortable things we deal with in democracy, especially when things are being done wrong. 
so yeah, you're, some person takes it upon themselves to to deputize themselves and defend what they believe is right, which is uncomfortable. However, it is based on how a democracy functions, including with democracy of ideas. It's a good with the bad. Now, if those leakers are caught, they should be prosecuted as well. Um, that's the you take the good with the bad, and, and if they want to claim whistleblower status, they're welcome to try. I suspect it wouldn't work, but it's one of those things that we deal with. I mean, everything from you know Watergate to to the Pentagon Papers, and in this case, Flynn, which is comparatively, I, don't, I want to say comparatively minor, but I don't know if we have enough detail. Um, it's it, those things that you might not know because of the nature of how power wants to control information, especially, especially stuff that's not exactly painting you in a flattering light. So it's it's uncomfortable, it's, but still Flynn is the bigger deal. Okay. Just remember what unfettered leaking does to us and take a look at Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and people who think that it that they're whistleblowers when they take American secrets and and share them for the world cause people to die, cost us billions and billions of dollars. Um, it it's it, there's no way to stop leaks. Let's acknowledge that, and and yet um, let's not simply say, yeah, I love the leakers. Um, uh, you know, I we do a little that. damage here that. and there. I didn't. No, I, I didn't say you did. I'm just reminding. I'm, I'm reminding us of why we have laws against leaking. Otherwise, we wouldn't even bother. Um, and uh, and Flynn will never know what would have happened to him. He he is no longer the big issue because he's he is so thoroughly discredited for. His behavior, which after the 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 subject at hand, um, has simply made him look worse and worse. Um, I don't know that there's a prosecutable offense that would cause him to lose a portion of his pension. For example, uh, I think he was a three-star general, so he's got a pretty hefty pension, but. But uh, good luck getting other uh, outside income at, at this point. Um, yeah. He has lost um, uh, an inc- whatever whatever uh, trust and credibility he had. Um, and um, Breitbart will still you know, hire him. Who? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I suppose there are probably a few places that'll that'll give him a few hundred dollars to give a speech. But but. Um, uh guys who <laughs> guys who pad their pockets lie lie to vice presidents if not presidents they they don't uh, they, they, i don't i don't know who i don't know who likes him now i will remind everybody that Flynn offered to testify before congress if he were given full immunity oh yeah and i think it's some at some point down the road once people conclude that there's nothing to be gained by by uh, not giving him immunity, or maybe they subpoena him and he has, he takes the fifth or whatever. Um, I could see down the road um, him either 
uh, testifying before Congress with immunity, uh, conditional immunity uh, of some sort, or writing a book, uh, writing a tell-all book. Said, yeah, right. I'll just 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 look in my book because Alan, he Alan, knows what Alan, his conversations with the president were. Alan, let me go to uh, Dan Lipner. Uh, last question, Dan, if if, if you take a look at everything, all things being considered in all of this, uh, who are the biggest winners? Who are the biggest losers from this past week of hearings? The biggest winners? I'm not certain there is one. Um, I mean, Sally Yates looked very impressive. I guess you can call her a winner since she handled herself with uh, dignity and showed herself to be up to the job of the job she was actually appointed to and the job she held briefly as acting attorney general. So I guess she's the biggest winner. Uh, biggest loser? Uh, I don't know. Mike Flynn doesn't seem to have a friend in the world. When Jason Chaffetz is uh, also saying that it's not clear that he – he he followed all the all rules possible, or it was a very interesting uh, verbal gymnastics Chaffetz used in in regards to Flynn. Um, so Flynn seems to be the biggest loser. Alan Moore. Well, I think it's I think it's the White House that's the loser uh, simply because of the way they handled uh, uh, the the Flynn stuff and and the the way they continue to. Uh, poo-poo the the importance of uh, uh, of the the Russian connection, um, uh, and and they and they and they've never shined when it came to discussions of the emails um, because they're always uh, feeling so threatened that that people are saying they didn't they they didn't win fair and square, which is absurd on its face. But the more they um, uh, the the more they contest that, the more one sort of wonders what what they're arguing about winners uh, certainly uh, I, I agree with Dan that that Yates uh, handled herself well Clapper did but I think the that by and large and one could pick and choose and I didn't watch all of it I think members of Congress um, helped themselves too they really are trying to understand this they didn't they didn't have to have this hearing I mean Lindsey Lindsey Graham uh, pushed for this hearing and and he insisted on it and he's not done um, and uh, the the role of the Russians is the is the bigger issue, and and, way, and, and way, we're far Alan, far from done on that. Alan, we've got breaking news out of Washington. Uh, the apparently the Senate Russian investigators have requested financial information from the White House of the president. Uh, this is following uh, reports. This is following reports of several gaffes including the latest one coming out of uh, the younger Trump brother, also known as sidekick to Donald Jr., Eric Trump, who came out in an interview with Golf Magazine stating that a good majority of the Trump resort money was done through Russian funding. And that is something that's about to really explode and cause some eyes to look deeper into the situation. That being said, Actually, we're gonna that's going to be really interesting. 
how's that? Well, just remember, that? remember, if, it was if, many if, months. If, if, if Trump is being was being truthful about the firewall between him and all the Trump organizations, in theory, that means there is no protection, there is no executive privilege, even though there probably wouldn't be anyway. But it means the White House needs to remain completely silent when they ask for these financial records on all the Trump companies. That will actually be kind of an interesting move to see how the White House responds. Alan Moore? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm just simply going to say that I haven't seen the, the, this, this, this ref, the, the Golf Magazine reference. Um, there's certainly been plenty of people calling for <laughs> Trump's um, financial records, particularly his tax returns. I'd like to see them myself. Um, I'm not sure what 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 true legal grounds there are to get them. But with regard to the the, the Russians, remember, there's a difference between Russian individuals, Russian oligarchs, rich rich Russians, of whom one can find uh, uh, a good number all over the world, including in America, and in, particularly in London and in other Western cities, as well as in Moscow, and then the Russian government. What they have said in the past was that they, they have uh, a number of Russian partners and Russian investors in their, and buyers of properties. Um, that's not does a this, secret. Alan, um, but there, but, Alan but remember, rich Alan, Russians Alan, are not the Russian government. Alan, does this make the White House stay up late at night now thinking this is coming down the pike? I, I, they have so many things to keep them awake at night. I don't. I don't know uh, about this. I, you know, they've they, they've obviously had internal conversations in the past about his tax returns, um, and if, and whether and when to release them. Um, my my hunch has always been that. Um, uh, there, there's other issues that are more embarrassing to them: lack of charitable giving, um, low effective tax rate on significant income. It um, isn't to say that there may not be other things you could learn in there, but I'm not. You, you you can't even necessarily learn everything. If you see some corporate entities, uh, investment partnerships, um, the, the 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 identification of who those the partners are, is not included on tax returns. Right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the health care bill that passed last week and what exactly does it do. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio, live from New York City and Washington, D.C. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. I felt a thrill And when you caught my eye 
my heart stood still Once again I seemed to feel that old yearning And I knew the spark of love was still burning There'll be no new romance for me It's foolish to start for that old feeling Is still in my heart This is Backroom Politics. We'll be back momentarily. Stay with us. show you've never heard of it is backroom politics live on blog talk radio i am your moderator justin russell joining you from the big apple in new york city joining me as they do every tuesday in washington dc we have the honorable alan moore and dan lipner esquire um let's talk a little bit about health care let's talk about obamacare repeal and replace in case you didn't see it last week uh in a real rush to the deadline the uh, House leadership brought forward a new version of their health care plan to the uh, floor vote, and uh, the vote passed, which means that the Senate will now get a hold of it. But there are still a lot of questions that need to be answered before the Senate takes up the vote, and still a lot of issues that have to be addressed. Um, Alan Moore, there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of almost uh, confusion, if you will, going through the GOP, especially on this on, on this version of the uh, Republicans' health care bill. Uh, you know, we're hearing that, well, precondition, precondition or pre-existing conditions pre-existing will stay. Right. Pre-existing conditions will stay. Some are saying that, no, it's actually going to be moved over to uh, something called a high-risk pool 
and that's going to cost everybody money. Uh, what are the big glaring differences that you see between this version of the bill and the one that just passed the House? Between, wait, between oh, sorry, this between, version of... Between the old, between the old version, the, the version 1.0. The, the, one the, the one that failed and the one that succeeded... Yes, those please. differences were those di- those differences were modest. What what happened was, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when you guys had already buried healthcare, and I said, you know, I don't think it's dead yet. Keep your eye on this. There's some conversations going on. What was happening was the 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 right wing Freedom Caucus, so called, um, was in this very uncomfortable position of having been trashing Obamacare um, for, uh, for seven years, eight years, seven years. And, and then all of a sudden um, being the guys that wouldn't provide the votes to provide a quote, repeal and replace unquote alternative. And so, and they simply said it didn't go far enough. It wasn't tough enough. Um, And, uh, but I think in the aftermath of that, as they were beginning to hear from some of their own constituents, the conservatives and so on, that you guys have been promising to do this. You wanted a majority so you could, you could get it done. You wanted a Republican in the white house to get it done. And now you can't even, uh, you can't even pass it with a simple majority. What in the heck is wrong? So some conversations occurred on the side. What, what, what can we do? What can we change uh, to, uh, to bring that group over. The changes were not that significant. And, and I mention that because there is a lot of criticism over the fact that the CBO never scored this bill. It's true. And it's <laughs> very uncomfortable for all the people in the past who said, where's the bill? We want to read it and we want a CBO score. And this time um, they, they said, well, we've there any committee hearings. We've made some tweaks to the bill, and um, and CBO. Well, you know, it's probably not going to be that different. Well, that may be true, but it is an it's <laughs> it, it is unfortunate given the long history that Republicans have had in 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 complaining, screaming loudly about um, uh, the need to have and and a commitment to provide um, text. And, est- and, and CBO estimates ahead of time. I think what happened is they suddenly realized, we think we can get this done. Let's make a few tweaks. It's, I think it's more, more significant to think about this bill as a, as a slight variation on the old one and talk about how the, 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 the problems its passage create for Republicans down the road, the opportunities right. it creates politically for Democrats, and where, Alan, and where the Senate is. Alan, let, let, me, let me ask you this question, because this has been bothering me since it passed. When I go back and I look in 2009-2010 when the Affordable Care Act was passed, and we see all the, critis- all the criticisms that came out of Republican leaders, including then-Congressman Paul Ryan, not, not Speaker of the House Ryan, where he's talking about the, they are shoving this down our throats. They are just pushing this as 
as an agenda item. They haven't put anything. We can't put this forward without CBO scoring, and we can't put this forward without any you know due diligence on it. It almost seems like the Republicans are doing the exact thing that they were complaining about the Affordable Care Act back in 2010. How do they justify that? Well, they <laughs> what they, what they say is the, the that 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 the a the text was out. There was a CBO estimate, and it couldn't get the votes. Okay, so round one. Um, it, I'm not saying it went through no, regular order, as Dan points out. It, this didn't pop, percolate up through the committees. This came up through a small working group <coughs> working with with uh, Speaker Ryan and others. And, the, you know, a lot of these guys have been working on this stuff for years. There's multiple bills that are out there. But, but Alan, they Alan, patched it, something. they patched something together. They made it available to people. They got a CBO uh, report. It was a really, really challenging, difficult set of CBO estimates, and they couldn't get the votes. They tweaked it, okay? They made some further changes, but by making those changes and not getting another CBO estimate, they opened themselves up to the, 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 the argument that they are doing what they said they hate. They are doing what they said they would never yeah. do. They're doing what the Democrats said. I think there's a material difference on the one hand. On the other hand, they're going to lose that argument. They don't have an estimate. It wasn't available to be read. It's now out of the House and now on a long, long path of months in the Senate, and I am not going to predict what the outcome in the Senate will right. be. But, Dan, this has got to frustrate you when you're seeing everything that you that the Democrats are saying about how this got passed, the rush, the push, the political backroom jockeying, et cetera, and then all of a sudden you hear what the Republicans said about Affordable Care Act in 2010. This has got to make you angry, and this has got to get the Dems at least stirred up to bring light to bring light to this uh, this issue. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, essentially, the Republicans' response to the Affordable Care Act has been the best PR for the Affordable Care Act since it was passed, um, because the Affordable Care Act is now much more popular than it's ever been in its history, and the Republicans' response, not the least of which is the issues for surrounding pre-existing uh, conditions um, is, is this thousand pound anchor that they're going to have to carry with them or in the, it, it, or in leader Pelosi's words, you know, this is going to, this is going to stick to you and glow through the next election. Um, it's hard for me to see exactly how, how they're going to spin this. I mean, when Congressman uh, Raul Labrador from Idaho, um, of all places, gets laughed at at, at his own town hall me- meeting, specifically talking about, you know, nobody in this country has ever died from lack of health care, that doesn't bode well. Idaho is not exactly a liberal bastion. But um, we'll see how this plays out. As far as the substance of the law, I, I mean, all the things that I-, I was able to praise about Obamacare for making things clear which, of what you had and what you didn't have. And I speak about this as a lawyer who insures through the exchanges. Um, 
those things are taken away. The the crazy variables that are in play of insurance companies being able to write into policies things that may or may not be clear to the average person or even the even a person trained in law could be coming back under this current Republican legislation. It's also worth noting, and Alan, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this. I don't think I've ever seen a White House spike the football when they've crossed their own 30 since this most certainly wasn't a touchdown yet. Um, can you think of any times this has happened? It, 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 I don't know if you guys, I don't know if you guys saw the the Saturday Night Live skit. Um, no. on, on Saturday, which it, 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 it touched on, on this point. It was actually the, 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 the subject was to ridicule uh, Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski and their engagement by, by just uh, ridicule, ridiculing the, the sexual tension, if you will, between them in their, during their show. But in the course of it, they, they, they had a call in from, from Alec Baldwin as Trump um, and although he didn't identify himself as the president, it's like this is this is um, Steve Miller from the White House. I think that was the name that he apparently used to use when he would talk to the press and pretend right. that it was a that it was a press spokesman rather than him. And it was, but it was clearly the Alex Baldwin as Trump voice. And they were saying, he said, "Oh yeah, we." <laughs> he's saying we took care of. We took care of repeal and replace. We got that done. And one of them said, well, Mr. President, you know, you only got it through the House. You still have to get something through the Senate. And the two houses of Congress um, have to agree and send you something. And he, and, and he said something like, wait, what? <laughs> and, and, and he said, I've got to check on that. Now, I, I, I could not understand a, why the president would want to bring everybody down there and uh, and tell them how great they were, and then uh, and why they would want to go down there to be told how great they are. Um, but what do I know? Nobody's inviting me to the White House, so it's not like I get to go down and and be part of a rah rah session and have a few beers. Alan, you um, can come down. You can come downtown. I'll tell you how great you are. Well, great. <laughs> That's terrific, but so I I I I think they were so desperate. So let, let let us remember this one thing among Republicans, because on its face this seems stupid, right? Here's a bill that is it, it, it's not about, frankly, whether the, the language was there or we know what it costs. That's it, it, that's really more inside baseball than anything else. The question is, what's in this bill and there's a bunch of problems in this bill to defend politically that's why people are up in arms they're showing up they're showing up at town meetings not because they didn't they voted on a bill that they didn't have estimates for they 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 showed up on a bill that they think is not going to provide the kind of coverage that they were getting from obamacare it doesn't matter that obamacare was not sustainable the republicans never made the case of what was wrong with current law Alan, let, let's let's go through a couple of these because there are some very big, big glaring issues that the GOP is going to have to answer for, including the implementation of allowing states to go to high risk pools. Uh, Dan Lipner, that doesn't solve any of the bigger problems that 
Obamacare theoretically did solve. Well, so I did see something on the high-risk pools. The Kaiser Family Foundation apparently put out a report uh, talking about high-risk pools, and I, I didn't get a chance to go into detail on it. But supposedly they can be feasible. However, they have to be fully funded, and that's the exception, not the rule, and I think that's part of everyone's fears. And also the question of the pre-existing health, pre-existing conditions, and some of which people don't always know about, and insurance companies being able to play games with them. Um, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg on some of those problems. Like that, I mean, Jimmy Kimmel uh, made some news talking about his newborn son who had a, had a heart defect that would most certainly be a pre-existing condition that occurred at birth. Um, whether or not that's the kind of thing that, that you know, corporate gamesmanship would allow insurance companies to dance around and not cover. It's not an unreasonable question. Well, yeah, let me yeah, – the, the Jimmy Kimmel thing is really fascinating because if, if, if you didn't watch it, it's, it's, it's very emotional to watch. He gets very emotional in describing what happened when they discovered at birth that their child had a, had a heart defect and they had, to, uh, they had to help it breathe and then get it to a different hospital where it had uh, open-heart surgery, um, and they had a – 24, 36, 48 hour period of just parent horror. And then he said, you know, he, he, he then made this leap to saying we, we need to keep Obamacare so that all children could have that. The, the, the interesting thing about that one is if you're in a decent hospital today, and this was pre Obamacare, your kid would be taken care of. I, I'm not trying to put him down. It was just he, he, people are saying, oh, my God, we can't allow that to happen. Babies have special coverage a couple of ways, one through a program called CHIP and one through the fact that kids in an emergency in a hospital setting, people, adults and children have to be treated. This is this bizarre business of uh, sick people going to the emergency room to be treated for bad colds and, and, and infections and how expensive that is. Um, and, and it provides this cushion for all the young people in America who are pretty healthy, are told under Obamacare, you can buy an, a policy, but because we can only charge seniors three times what we charge you, even though they're going to spend about six times what you spend, you're going to have huge monthly premiums, co-pays, and co-insurance, and the young people are saying, forget it. If I'm really sick, I know I can go to the emergency room and they'll have to take care of me. I mean, that's one of various problems with our current system that, that, that Obamacare helped compound. But when people have coverage that they couldn't get before, particularly sicker people, with pre-existing conditions or older people who are getting the best deal they could ever get in the world, um, they are going to yell and scream at a suggestion that it's going to be taken away. And when at the same time you're making that life way more complicated, probably more expensive, you're also removing $800 billion worth of taxes 
mostly on very wealthy people and and on and on uh, medical devices uh, manufacturers pharmaceuticals and insurance companies they say wait a minute you're making you're taking insurance coverage away from the poor the needy those with pre-existing conditions and giving 800 billion dollars in in uh, in reduced taxes over 10 years to this other group are you crazy get out of here you will never get my vote again that's Dan the crude hard politics that that this issue brings forward and i think that the Repub- that the republicans in the house just mismanaged it we will you know whether that vote uh <laughs> will glow in the dark uh, forever for them or not is going to depend a lot on what the Senate does. And I don't know that the Senate is going to be able to come up with something that works. If they do, it'll look very different. What would be great is if the Senate could find some Democrats and Republicans to say, let's not talk about Obamacare. That's an important part of the current health system, but it's not the bulk of the current health system. We still need reform in American uh, right. in, in healthcare, can we come up with something that works? And you can call it, we fixed Obamacare, and we'll call it repeal and replace, okay. but we'll agree on the content. Dan Lipner, <laughs> your take. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with Alan, but it's also worth noting there are some things that Obamacare actually has fixed, uh, one of which is the hospitals in the emergency room. Um, a lot of those same kids and people who would show up without insurance uh, would get emergency room treatment as they are required to, as emergency rooms are required to give by law. Um, they can't turn somebody away. They would occasionally not be reimbursed for the cost providing that care. Uh, the fact that more people are covered by health insurance now means that more of those costs were covered. And hospitals across the country were howling at some of the changes of, at the from the Republicans' bill. In addition to that, as far as just the cost side, one absolute truth to Obamacare is bankruptcies caused by health issues have, have gone down hugely since Obamacare. And those are things you would presumably like to keep. So, you know, if somebody, if a, if a, you know, a person in the family gets sick, it doesn't mean that's going to be, they're going to have to file for Chapter 11 and lose all their worldly possessions. Obamacare most certainly did fix that. Now, the problems that Alan stated are all, also all true, and they're, they aren't easy, and they need to be rectified, and they need to be dealt with seriously. Unfortunately, the House didn't deal with it seriously, and cobbled together something that made the Freedom Caucus happy-ish, and they bought off some of the moderates with the trying to throw money at the high-risk pools. That's as Alan, close Alan to Moore has, policy as we have at the moment. Alan Moore, has, has, has the House GOP put the midterms back into play a little differently now that we've seen the reaction of some of the constituents at these town hall meetings? It's it, it's it's too soon to know. They certainly may have. Let let me acknowledge that the possibility is very real. Um, a couple of months from now, um, when we have a better idea about what might or might not emerge from the Senate, um, which would look quite different from what the House did, and they may not, and they may not be able to come up with something. 
it's entirely possible that the Senate fails to come up with a repeal and replace option so that the the bill that the House passed is an orphan that sits out there. That That's one real option. It's, you know, I don't, I, I can't tell you that the Senate can't do it. I just don't know what it would look like. This stuff is so complicated and people have come to rely on it. And if you're relying on it, you don't care how it's paid for and you don't care. You don't care that the costs are, are going up 40 or 50 percent because you're covered. Alan, you know what? Here, here's what bugs me about all this. And, 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 and you just said it and you said it and it's correct. This is difficult stuff. This is not easy. I hate bringing up that quote from Trump, but he's right. Healthcare is not easy. And the reality Who knew? Is, yeah, yeah, go figure. <laughs> but the reality is, when I see Republicans, and I see a Republican leadership in the House literally drive this, you know, drive, a, drive this thing like a sports car through the process and expect there to be massive buy-in from the constituency, the reality is the constituency doesn't know what they've bought. The constituency doesn't know what they have. And that's very evident through the reactions that we're seeing at these town hall meetings that are literally, I mean, one congressman walked out yesterday after one question. So I I, I find it hard to believe that the Republicans, my party as well, could go out and justify this new health care bill where – According to many who see it, it, uh, it, it you know the high risk pools don't work. The money, you know, the pre-existing conditions question is now up for grabs. There's a ton, and and oh, by the way, the biggest winners financially out of all this appear to be those who make over two hundred thousand dollars a year. So how? Two fifty. Um, what's that? Oh, I'm sorry. Two fifty. Too busy. 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 Too Tell me how a Republican goes to his district and says, trust me, this works for you. Well, so, so I have no idea how they say this works for you. They, one of their problems is, don't worry, before we're done, the system is going to work better for you than Obamacare. And they say, how is that? And they say, trust us. That's where the trust comes in. What, what Ryan said, and there's a point here that, that, that as an elected politician, he has a lot more credibility than any of us, that is from Republicans and hearing from other Republicans, They've been talking about repealing Obamacare at, for, as, as, as a liturgical exercise for, for seven years. They've had 80 votes or 100, and, I don't know, you know, some crazy number of different votes to, to try to, uh, uh, to repeal it without a replacement. And they always uh, died after the, 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 that would happen in the House. And 
if they when they passed, usually they had passed and they would just die. They were just they were just exercises in symbolism. <clears throat> but what what they kept saying is we need a Republican president and we and and then we can repeal this crazy thing. And you know, remember it used to just be repeal as and then it became repeal and replace. Um and uh nobody was talking about repair, uh, although some of the Democrats did. So we can sit here and say, what are they thinking? And watch the people in the town hall meetings and the, 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 the sad stories of people who had no coverage and now do have coverage and have no guarantee that they would have coverage going forward is a very powerful argument. And that's most of what we see um, in, in the media. We don't see the people who say, I have insurance, but I can't afford to use it because and these are not the people at the very bottom whose whose co-pays and co-insurance are subsidized. It's that next layer, the the lower income, the people making forty to fifty, who who can now buy insurance, but they can't afford the co-pays and the co-insurance, and they don't have the subsidies that 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 pay for all of that. And, and there's a huge cohort. There's a huge cohort there, but but the politics that ultimately drove this, I guess, I guess, is, folks, here's our chance. We have to show we passed a bill to repeal and replace. This is not the final word, but let's get this off our plate. Let's move on to other issues. And that mindset prevailed in, in the last two weeks. I was surprised. I thought, and I said a couple of weeks ago, that I thought that these, the the two sides the 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 far right and the and and the so-called left um, among the house the moderates that killed it that did may have done the 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 republicans a favor by not having a bill pass that they could then point at and point to and rip apart for all of its negative impacts on 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 citizens as well as this massive windfall taxes to to uh to wealthy people, but lo and behold, they came up with something, and now they're going to have to live with it, and it may affect the the 2018 elections. That remains to be seen. Dan, Dan Lipner, please tell me: Are the Democrats ready? Can they get their act together and capitalize over some of the disorganization or some of the public outcry that they're seeing as a result of this health care bill? Well, the capitalize, I'll, I'll, I'll answer first because that's a little bit easier in the simple fact that Democrats running for office are raising huge amounts of capital thanks to this. Uh, there's been a lot of reporting that about the the fundraising boon that the that this Republican bill has created for Democrats nationwide. So, yeah, there is capitalizing on it. As far as acts together um, – yeah, we are Democrats and more than capable of stealing uh, defeat out of the jaws of victory. Um, the Will Rogers line still stands. I don't belong to any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. <laughs> Very good. Well, listen, we, we've blown through a lot. We've only got 19 minutes left in the show, and I don't want to go without talking about the uh, the French election that happened over the weekend in case you missed it. Uh, the French electorate went to the polls, and in a 
what many in France that I've talked to have said is a landslide. The centrists, uh, Emmanuel Macron, has defeated the populist nationalist known as Marine Le Pen. Uh, this was kind of a surprise to many as far as how big the margin was, uh, over 60% to 40%, and by French standards, that is a huge landslide. Uh, and now uh, President-elect Macron will take office on Sunday, where he will put together a parliament to govern. Uh, many are saying right now, Alan Moore, that uh, the demise of Marine Le Pen is a signal that nationalist populism might have run its course, and we're going to go back to seeing more stable political candidates as, instead of far wacky left and far wacky right. Do you agree with them? I don't know. I, I, don't know? I, I, I I'm very hesitant to to pronounce any movement uh, dead or or. So, so fundamentally weakened or um, so strengthened that we can look for them to play a major role uh, historically. This was a very strange election because two extreme, two, two very different outsiders were in, made the runoff. You know, there were, <laughs> there were, there were two other people who weren't far behind, but because they came in third and fourth, they were from the, 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 the two long-term um, uh, ruling two, parties that would that, yeah. were, they, that were swapping that were swapping power for for decades, and they came up third and fourth. So there, there's no question that this pop populist, nationalist, nativist, uh, sometimes ugly, xenophobic uh, right uh, has grown enormously. And I don't think they got the forty, but they. But they were in the you know thirty six ish percent, um, and uh, having said that, having faced with being faced with that, an outsider who doesn't even represent a, an existing party was endorsed by the two major other parties um, because they they were so appalled at the notion of the uh, this 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 unpleasant person. Um, I mean, one thing about Trump, although he could certainly be ugly, he could also be funny and a little bit charming. I, 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 uh, I, along with all of the the obvious ugliness that we know he's capable of, but I never saw any sense of humor on her part. Um, and I think she just, you know, some people like Donald Trump. I, it was hard for me to find anybody who actually liked um, uh, Mrs. LePone. Um and and uh, Macron, on the other hand, young, attractive, and then this really sort of fascinating um, business of the older wife, uh, 25 years old, 24 years older, um, which is so unusual in Western culture and society and among politicians. But it generated its own, you know, it generated its own following among women. Yeah, it's his, so, it's his former high school. It's his former high school teacher, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Uh, but Dan Lipner, you know, the demise of Marie Le Pen's candidacy 
did France and did the EU dodge a bullet with this one? Could we have seen a Brexit followed by a Frexit, which is a term I was told by a couple of friends of mine in Paris is a term. Uh, would would Frexit have been the demise of the entire EU? Yes. Um, and I'm even though I, I, I applaud Alan for, for being able to straddle a line, I think if France left the EU, uh, that would have been the end of the EU. It would have been Germany uh, alone as a major economic power and wouldn't, I don't know if everyone else in the EU would have been uh, game to play ball with a uh, German-centric uh, economy that governing everyone else's lives. Um, that said, I, I do want to point out, I, I do want to agree with Alan. I, I, I'm hesitant to say the, 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 the nationalist groups are going away anytime soon. I mean, a, a lot of that is in response to both the immigration issues and, not, and the terrorism issues that have been plaguing Europe. So it wouldn't take much to, to light a flame and have them grow in power. Uh, France being, you know, plugging the dam at the moment, that, that was a sigh of relief to many people, including me, uh, that, that, there is, that there is some place to push halt um, that forward momentum. But I, I think it would be foolish to assume it's going away. Let's also remember, it, and just a word about 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 the French economy and why um, two outside parties could could uh, could come to the fore and 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 be in the runoff. France, whoa, 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 whoa. the France. Hey, Alan, 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 yeah. I got to break in here. Uh, Politico is now just announced. President Donald Trump has fired FBI Director James Comey. That is Politico report. Politico, again, breaking news out of Washington, D.C. Politico is reporting right now that President Donald Trump has fired FBI Director James Comey, a move that comes as the FBI is is probing potential contacts between Trump's campaign aides and Russian officials ahead of the election. The president has accepted the recommendation of the attorney general and the deputy attorney general regarding the dismissal of the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, told reporters. It is not immediately clear exactly why Comey was ousted, according to Politico. This is huge, huge news. Is this going to draw more attention to Trump and bring on more problems for the Trump camp? Is this now becoming a bigger issue, or was Comey just too politicized? Alan Moore, I'll start with you. Well, yeah, well, he he, he was clearly um, uh, somewhat damaged goods. Um, there were Republicans who were angry at him still, and there were a lot of Democrats who said, get him the hell out of here. He cost Hillary Clinton the election. Um, and, and uh, I, I, I'm, I'm surprised. I thought that he was going to be able to survive here. Uh, interestingly, uh, directors of the FBI are approved for 10-year terms, but presidents can ask for their resignation. Uh, and it's happened before, and, and, it, and it happens now. What, it, what, 
what it guarantees is it's going to be in the news. And can you can you imagine the uh, the hearing for the confirmation for the next director of the FBI? Um, uh, I mean, sure Eric I don't Trump know who do they're going to. Great job. I don't know who they're, who they're going to get, but it's going to take a while to find uh, uh, find somebody. Maybe you know this might be one where they say. Um, I'm trying to think of what kind of politician from the Senate might <laughs> might come in and 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 have enough credibility that that uh, he or she could uh, uh, could could make it. Um, Dan, I'm Dan not Lipner, predicting that. I think it's going to be a mess. Dan Lipner, does does the, do the Democrats look at this as saying okay? Trump is now acting desperate that maybe James Comey and the Bureau were getting too close to finding out certain realities that he didn't want on the table? Listen, I'm going to step back from the Democratic answer and just go for the, as an American answer, I find it horrifying. Um, There is no evidence based on the record that I've seen that Comey done anything other than his job. I may have questioned his judgment on a couple of things, but I've seen nothing to suggest he has done nothing other than his job and done it seemingly well. This happening is feels Nixon-esque to me, um, but there's still more information to come. But dear God, who does Trump appoint to... Uh, to replace them, uh, the, the the former dis, the former disgraced police commissioner from New York, or did he put his uh, his retired police officer body man, who's the chief of Oval Oval Office Operations, to be director of the FBI? I mean, it, this is going to be crazy, and it's going to draw a lot more attention. Now, the political side of this is just that Comey went after Hillary Clinton, and you, now you're going to tell me that he's not credible as director of the FBI? Democrats have more than two legs to stand on to yell and scream about this and whatever comes next. I mean, the, 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 the scandal or the uh, conspiracy theorists are going to go wild about this. Let me ask this question. Alan Moore, did, did Donald Trump, by getting uh, – again, this is according to reports from – Politico that we're going off of, if in fact that he got consensus from the attorney general and the deputy attorney general, Trump firing Comey as FBI director, has he whipped up a hornet's nest of political of a political storm that we haven't seen since Nixon? You know, I... Here's the thing. It, I mean, among other things, it seems pretty obvious that that Comey and Sessions have uh, have had must have had some issues together. It, it may be that 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 Comey and others in the White House um, are uh, are having challenges. It may be that White House has said to Comey. You need to tell us more stuff about what you're seeing, what you're doing, what you're finding. And he may be saying, can't do it, can't do it, can't do it. Um, and uh, uh, I I don't know. I mean, I know there will be accusations that uh, among many others. It's so it's so amusing to me 
the Democrats who hated Comey will now be coming to his defense. Even Dan, it's interesting, who's had very harsh words for Comey in the past. No, 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 no. I, I, to, I have, to I have called Comey bulletproof <laughs> consistently, well, and I, I'm on the record on this. No, I've called him bulletproof. No, no, I, I, I know. That, I know you've called him bulletproof, but it wasn't because you liked that he was bulletproof. Um, but because you've been you're very critical of the way he handled the, the the Hillary stuff as have many Democrats and there were plenty of Democrats who were calling for his hide um, and calling on him to resign and now and now they're going to be and it doesn't it, it really has no nothing to do with Dan here but it, it we're, we're going to find all sorts of Democrats who now find that he was a man of great integrity that he was he was um, looking deeply into the ties with Russia. And that it must be that that uh, he was getting too close to too many people, and we need to okay. get him out of there Alan, to, to have somebody else uh, lead this investigation. Alan Moore, let me ask this question then. I mean, does 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 Comey come out and open up the floodgates on what he knows? Well, so <laughs> he obviously knows a lot of stuff. Um, He's a careful, cautious guy. He doesn't want to just kiss and tell immediately. I don't think we're going to hear anything from Comey um, for a while. I think he's simply going to say it's not appropriate uh, in the middle of an investigation, uh, before, during, or before or during an investigation for a current or former uh, Justice Department official to talk about it. Maybe sometime down the road I'll have something to say about it. Um, I, if, if, let me say this, if, if, if the president and the people around the president think that this might be a good way to get quote, their guy into the FBI, good damn luck. It's (laughs) whoever gets named is going to be under intense scrutiny and, unless we know more and we'll, we'll learn bits and pieces of what's going on here. Um, I can just imagine that, that it's going to be a battle Royal for who replaces him. Um, uh, unless it's someone of, you know, of super high recognized experience, integrity, et cetera. This is, this is not going to be some friend of the president, political hack, type thing um it it's one of the thing one of the reasons i thought comey would would survive all of the controversy is cuz he's been in the job he knows the stuff the fbi agency itself seems to uh respond and respect him although i could you know it may be that 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 there's grousing inside about how he's handled himself the last last 6 months there's there's a lot to to see as as this comes forward i i'm not prepared to to draw any any huge large conclusions about it it it's uh, it's so it's so surprising and unexpected um that uh you know in a couple of days next week we'll be able to look back and say well now we know this and this and this right now we're still in this this sort of the shock effect Alan, let me go to Dan Lipner, though. I mean, you know, when we go back and, you know, obviously there, this is just breaking while we've been on the air. But if, if we go back and we look, even historically, I mean, even contentious FBI directors such as J. Edgar Hoover 
was was always seen as you don't fire the FBI director. Um, does, is this going to give ammo for Democrats on the Hill to really double down on Russia and double down on Flynn and double down on OCI? Yeah, and that's just not that's you're just t- touching on some of them. I mean, the Kushner family, uh, some of Jared's family members were openly, debatedly selling, uh, at least using White House influence as a sales technique for one of their properties. And somebody, somebody who knows more about this than me, says it, you know, kind of skirted the uh, legality. So that's one of many things. This is going to be open season on. Pretty much everything. Not as not as though these people weren't paying attention before, but to fire the cop on the beat who you know was investigating, yeah, not Dan, that doesn't make anything better. Dan Littner, does does James Comey become a martyr for the Democrats? Considering James Comey was a highly regarded Republican, yeah, I think he's the perfect martyr Even for the Democrats. Even though many Democrats blame him for the Hillary loss, you still think that he's he becomes a marching cry for the anti-Trump crowd. Again, the only thing I have a question was James Comey's judgment on on what he did, and I empathized with him when he talked about how much he struggled with the decision to make the the, the issues with the uh, Clinton emails when he go public with it, and even the letter that he sent to Congress. Um, well, I think he. I, I think he. I, I think he is actually a stand-up individual, and I still think he's bulletproof. And his integrity is almost unquestionable based on the public record as I've seen it. So well, yeah, I think he feels a good martyr for this. Democrats. Well, we're going to talk about this next week. Obviously, we've only got about another minute, but I want to take a moment, real quickly. Uh, this week, uh, one of our. Of our own, Admiral Ken Carradine is obviously vacant from his normal seat, and that is because that he and his lovely wife Eileen are in fact getting married at the U.S. Naval Academy Saturday. Uh, obviously, Dan, Allen, and I, on behalf of the entire team, we want to wish Admiral Ken and Eileen a hundred years of happiness. We wish them so much, so much happiness. And we're looking forward to a big party this weekend. So that's going to be fun. And on behalf of Dan Lipner and Alan Moore, I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week live uh, from Washington, D.C., hopefully all together. Don't have any travel that week. So I, we will all be together back in the National Press Club. I'm going to be in San Francisco next week. Oh, that's right. Gosh, we're trying to get the family together. It's tough. Uh, we will be live. Hopefully, Dan, you'll be able to call in. But We will be live with the best political talk show that you've never heard of. This has been Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. You can follow us with our friends at Sidewire, sidewire sidewire.com. Download the app, www.backroompolitics.org, or follow us on Twitter, at Backroom Politics. We'll see you next week, America. Bye-bye. So long. This is Backroom Politics.